Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I'm gonna list 20 of the most influential people in history. I wanna see if you can tell what they all have in common, okay? So all 20 of these people have something in common. Five of them are famous believers, influential Christians, believers. Five of them are famous artists and composers. Five of them are famous writers, and five of them are famous scientists and philosophers. And they all have something in common, which is not shared by everybody, or not shared by me, not shared by many of you. See if you can work out what all 20 of them have in common. Right? The first five are all believers. This is John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, St. Athanasius, St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas. Okay? All believers. The next five are all artists and composers. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Beethoven, Chopin, and Van Gogh. The next five are all famous writers. Jane Austen, John Keats, Emily Bronte, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin. And then the last five are all probably, possibly the greatest scientists and philosophers of the last 2,000 years. Blaise Pascal, René Descartes, Leibniz, Isaac Newton, and Immanuel Kant. Now, all 20 of those people have something in common. And it is the same thing that's true of all 20 of those is also true, as far as we know, of the five people who are in the story we've just read. Namely, Lazarus, Martha, Mary, Judas Iscariot, and Jesus Christ. So, if you're watching this with someone else, just turn to them and say, this is what I think they all have in common. What do you think it is? The answer is, none of them were married. They were all unmarried or single people. And I find that remarkable. I find it astonishing. When I dug into it and discovered it, I was really, really surprised. Given that the vast majority of people, I mean, even in our culture, a majority of people get married. But in most cultures, the number's far higher. Um, almost everybody gets married in many, many cultures. And yet, a wildly disproportionate number of the greatest and most influential thinkers and creatives and brilliant influential people in history have been single or been unmarried. And the Apostle Paul, who of course himself is a single man, as we've just seen, he gives a, what I think might be an explanation of that fact in 1 Corinthians 7. He has this lovely phrase where he says, the interests of married people are divided. That's what he says. He said, married people have divided interests. That is, they've got 
in his case, the call of God on their lives to be a missionary and to go and reach the world. But they've also got um, their married interests. They've got maybe children. They've got the interest of their spouse. And as a result, they've got divided interests. And then Paul says, well, I don't. I'm focused. I can just do this. There seems to be something, not just in the church, but actually even in the world, there seems to be something about being unmarried or being single that enables people to have single-minded devotion to something that is not possible for married people. Now, obviously it is possible to be a brilliant, creative, innovative, genius person and be married. You might think of Shakespeare, Mozart, Einstein, John Wesley, in the different categories you've just seen. But if you know anything about those four people I've just mentioned, you know they all had terrible marriages. In other words, even in their single-minded devotion, and they remained single-mindedly devoted and focused, and as a result, uh, left a a wake of, in some cases, devastation in their family lives, and that's not uncommon, sadly, if you see the history of many of these people. It seems that being unmarried enables people to have a single-minded focus that married people are not able to have, or at least ought not to have, if they're going to be good husbands or wives. And in this chapter we've just read, we find five examples of what looked like single-minded devotion to something. And we don't know for certain that Judas wasn't married, but I think it's likely he wasn't. But we we see single-minded devotion. We see people who are committed to one thing and one thing only, and one of them in a bad way, which is Judas, and three of them in a good way that's an example for us, which is Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and one, which is, of course, Jesus himself, who we'll look at at the end. And single-minded focus enables you to do things that other people simply can't do. And I remember learning this lesson, actually, um, the guy who first brought me onto church staff, like when I first started working for a church as a youth and kids worker, uh, he was a much older guy who had been leading the church for years, and he took me out for a coffee in the afternoon, and then we sat there for about an hour in a cafe, and we had probably a couple of cups of coffee, and at the end of that, I really needed the loo. And so I get up as we're about to leave, and he says, oh, we'll walk back to the building, and I said, oh, i just got to go to the loo. So I went, and then came back, and he said to me, did you notice that at the end, when you got up and said you were going to go to the loo, if I'd stopped at that point and said, actually, could we just finish this conversation? Or, I think we should walk back to the building now. You'd have said, no, no, I'm going to the toilet. Like, that's my only thing I, want to, I care about right now. We could, that can wait. He said, that's what leadership's like. That's what the Christian life is like. He said, you have to be single-minded about the thing that you're called to do and then push aside the other thing. And I, at the time I was single, push aside all the other things that might crowd in. They might be good. They might be valid. But you've got to put them to one side because you're going to the... He called it toilet vision. He said, that's where I'm committed to go. And it, I've never forgotten it. And there's something about the unmarried life in these stories and individuals we've just mentioned, and particularly in this passage, that seems to enable a focus of single-minded devotion. Nevertheless, it looks very different in the lives of these five people, and so we're going to look at them one at a time and have a look at what their single-minded devotion led them to and what we might learn from it. We'll start with Judas. And when we first hear Judas's response to, the, to what's happened, which is that Mary's taken this expensive perfume, poured it out, and Judas, when we first hear Judas's response, he sounds like a really good guy. But John immediately tells us that his real motive is not his stated motive. So Judas is saying, John, John says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, which is what Judas said, but because he was a thief and used to help himself to the money. Judas, in other words, is not only greedy, 
He's also what we might now call virtue signaling. That is, he's trying to communicate that his motive is very noble, even when it ultimately isn't. And that's not, that's not a modern phenomenon. Sometimes people use that phrase as if it's something that we invented six years ago. This has been around forever. People have often found ways of saying, I really want that, but what I'm going to do is I'll couch it in language that implies I want this very high, noble goal. And as a result, they expose themselves, in this case, not only as being greedy, but also as being proud. He wants to look single-mindedly devoted to the poor, but he's actually single-mindedly devoted to money. And he's so committed to money that he's able to find ways of disguising that by making it look like he's talking about something else. He's using the poor and Jesus as a means to an end. That's what he's single-mindedly devoted to. Now, tragically, that happens in the church. I hope it doesn't, as far as I know, it doesn't happen in this church in that way, but it does happen in the church. And in the last few years, if you're aware of what's been happening in the global church, the evangelical church, churches that love Jesus, around the world, you will have seen a whole load of scandals in which leaders have been exposed as talking about this and saying that's what they're after, but actually there's been all sorts of other awful things going on under the surface. Many of them not obviously about money, some of them about sex or power or abuse, but one thing that a lot of those stories, I've noticed almost all of them have in common, is that the individual who is eventually exposed as having done something awful in leadership is almost always paid immeasurably more than you could possibly need to do Christian ministry. And there is often, it seems, even in the church, there is a connection between people's, people's financial, single-minded devotion to money and their ability to live in unreality and think that therefore they are able to do whatever they want to whomever they want and the rules don't apply to them. And you've seen that not just in the world, in perhaps politics or business where you might expect to see it, but we see it in the church as well. And of course, in social media, we also have a platform, a whole setup, a way of interacting with one another that seems designed to reward the kind of virtue signaling that Judas does here. I, 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 this could be given to the poor. Secretly, I'm actually using it for this. But social media rewards that kind of behavior, doesn't it? Where it, it's very easy to say something without anyone you know, and anyone on the platform actually knowing that your life doesn't reflect what you're saying. It's very easy to live a double life. It's very easy to use this wonderful rhetoric about being a wonderful, caring, compassionate person, but underneath it to have this sort of lifestyle because there's no correlation between who you are online and who you are in reality, or there needn't be. In other words, I think Judas presents quite a powerful pair of challenges for us as we consider life in the modern world and the risk of our devotion being channeled in the wrong direction. And Jesus sees straight through it. Jesus sees right through the facade and he confronts him directly and simply says, leave her alone. Right? She can have it for the day of my burial. The poor you'll always have with me, you won't always have me. In other words, I know, Judas, that what's really in your heart is not what you're claiming. But if your heart or mine, like Judas's, is set on riches and the approval of others and the two of them in concert with one another, it will not end well. Jesus sees through it and says, leave her alone. Judas is exposed. And that later in the next, very next chapter, Judas, of course, is going to leave the circle of the Last Supper to go and betray Jesus. And John gives this withering sign-off to Judas's disappearance when he writes, and it was night. Judas has stepped out into the darkness. And as we kind of knew he would from this encounter, that his heart 
is expressing single-minded devotion, but not to Christ, as he claims, but actually to money and the approval of other people. Just Judas. The next up is Martha. Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Now, here's my thing about Martha. I think Martha is probably the most underrated disciple in the Gospels. Because most people who know anything about Martha, the one thing that everybody remembers is that she was too busy doing the cooking and washing up to be able to be a worshipper of Jesus. Right? Mary was just sitting there listening, but Martha was away in the kitchen doing all the work. And in fact, the picture, some of you probably have this Bible that you use with your kids. The Bible I use with my four-year-old son, this is what the picture of Martha looks like in that Bible. I'm sort of scowling with a massive bowl of, like, what, I know, first of all, what she's making? Is that a cake? I don't really know. But she just looks really angry. And that's how Martha gets remembered, as this sort of would-be disciple who was just too busy and too stressed. But the point of that story, which is not the same passage as we're reading now, that's the story in Luke chapter 10, but the point of that story is not that serving is bad. The point of that story is that listening to Jesus is good, and Martha shouldn't be snarking her sister for doing it. And Martha has, it seems, learned that lesson, that listening to Jesus is good. In fact, in the previous chapter to the one we've just read, John 11, Martha is first out the house to welcome Jesus as he approaches to the house of her and her sister and her, at the time, dead brother Lazarus. And when Jesus is talking to her about whether or not she believes he can raise Lazarus from the dead, she says this, she makes, she's the first person in John's gospel to confess who Jesus truly is. She says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. So John does not see Martha as a failed disciple who's too busy scowling angry in the kitchen. John sees her as a woman who has, it would seem, taken that lesson to heart and become a true disciple, but who nevertheless, somebody needs to do the cooking and the serving and the preparation, and that's what Martha's good at, so that's what she does. So in the story we've just read, there's no indication Martha's not supposed to be serving. There's no eye roll about Mary. Martha's not going, oh, here's Mary again, massive, splashy act of devotion, trying to make the attention about her. She doesn't say anything like that. Martha's just serving, getting on with it. And in the next chapter, John 13, Jesus will define Christian discipleship and leadership through the lens of serving other people by washing their feet, which is just what Martha seems to be doing. So I don't think Martha is a busybody in this story. I think she is expressing her single-minded devotion to Jesus through serving and using the gifts that she has to be able to put on a meal for everybody. Now, at the heart of the story is character number three, which is Mary, her sister. Verse three, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we know how expensive this ointment was because of Judas's complaint. Judas says, this could have been sold for 300 denarii, at which point we all go, oh, 300 denarii, that's very expensive. A denarius is what you got paid for a day's work as a labourer in the ancient world. In other words, this is the equivalent of a year's salary for a labourer. 20,000 pounds, I don't know, but like a lot and this is a big, splashy, costly act of devotion. This is her life savings poured out over Jesus' feet. But even more than that, it's a picture of what Jesus himself is going to do for Mary and for you and for me. 
Jesus, over the course of the next few chapters in this gospel, is not only going to have Mary's costly sacrifice poured out over him, he is going to pour out his entire life over her and over you and over me and over all the world that he wants to come and save. And he's going to do that in order to wash and cleanse their most shameful parts, the feet, to wash the dirt and the filth away from our lives and cleanse us and turn us from something that stinks into something that is aromatic and beautiful so that the whole world is filled with our perfume. Mary, whether she knows this or not, and I suspect she doesn't, Mary is enacting pictorially what Jesus is going to do at the cross. That he's going to pour out his entire life, 20,000 pounds plus worth of it, and he's going to pour it all over people in order to set them free and cleanse them from their filth and turn them into an aromatic perfume wonder that the whole world will be attracted to and marvel at. And some people will complain and say, what are you doing that for? What a waste of money. And Jesus is going to say, no, it's the best possible thing I could have done with my life to give it up in order to cleanse and make others beautiful. Now, most of the Christian life is not lived at the level of what Mary does here. Right? If you have a jar of perfume that's worth 20 grand, and most of us don't, it's probably not the kind of thing that you would ever break more than once, right? And then obviously the breaking of the pot is that's simply how you opened a pot in the old days because you didn't have lids like we do. So you just, right now's the time to use it. And off it goes. So this is the kind of thing that you don't live the whole life like this. Mary, as far as we know, didn't do this yesterday and she won't be doing it tomorrow. It's something that you do almost, it's a one-off moment and it's very costly and very sacrificial and very impressive. But it is a picture of what Jesus demands from his disciples. Death to self. Unconditional surrender, to use the language of a sort of military image. Like, I'm going to give up and you can take anything you want. None of this is mine anymore, God. It's all yours and I surrender all to you. And in Matthew's version of the story, Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. And anywhere the gospel is preached in the whole world, people are going to tell this story, Jesus said. And of course, we still are. So you've got Mary. Then the fourth example of single-minded devotion, which looks very different again, is the example of Lazarus. Verses 1 to 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. That's all we know about him. Right? He's been raised from the dead, and he's reclining with Jesus at table. Now, Lazarus has had an odd few months. Right? He used to be dead, and now he's not. That's a very, very strange experience he's had. It would seem he was raised from the dead somewhere around what we would now think of as middle of winter, and this is now just approaching Easter time. So it's been, he died and then rose again about three months ago, but that's an odd experience, I expect. It's a strange story to tell at parties, but it's also like, how do you compute that? What was it like to have been dead? This is a stupid comment, but I just found it funny. <laughs> found recently um, there's a hunting magazine in 1874 that gave advice to people if they fell off their horse. And one of the lines in the advice given in 1874 was, if you fall from your horse, quote, don't for a minute give the impression of being dead, even if you are. That's what it said. And I just found it really funny. I felt like I had to share it. Like, how am I supposed to give the impression or not of being dead if I am? And now Lazarus is one of the few people alive who actually can know what it's like to have been dead and then come out of it. So it's a very odd experience for him. But in some ways, of course, he serves as a picture of the Christian. 
He's representative of me and of you. He was dead in the tomb. He had no works. He didn't even have any faith, actually, at this point. And yet he is summoned to life by the mighty word of Jesus outside the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And he does. And life breaks into his death and summons him to life. The grave clothes come off. He steps out into total freedom, new life. And in some ways, that's exactly what's happened to me. That's the wonder that we celebrate when we sing and worship together as a church. It's pure grace. And here he is, three months later, and he seems still to be enjoying the grace and goodness and presence of Jesus. He is simply reclining with Jesus at table. Now, I might be reading way too much into this. Maybe I am. But I see in this man a picture of someone who has been dead, is now alive, and all he wants to do is just to lie there and enjoy the fact that Jesus is there. Just be in the presence of the Lord who raised him from the dead. Eat a meal, chill out, fellowship with the master. And therefore, I even see in Lazarus that very brief reference. Well, in your case... And admittedly, some of this is just that in this kind of culture, Martha would have served, the woman would have served, and the man would have just laid back. So I'm, I'm not saying we should all just do that and men just lie around. That's not the point I'm making at all. Just to say, though, that there is a way of expressing single-minded devotion to Jesus that doesn't necessarily involve serving him at the time and doesn't even necessarily involve making a splashy, cost, costly sacrifice for him and might just involve spending time in his presence, enjoying the fact that he's there, eating a meal with him, having fellowship with him. A single-minded devotion can take many different forms, I think. Sometimes it means diligent, unsung service. Sometimes it means a costly act of sacrifice that means giving up everything. And in fact, for all of us, that is what the, the life of the disciple is going to involve when we first come to Christ. It's what we celebrate and enact in baptism, isn't it? A dying to self. But sometimes it's also just going to mean reclining at table and enjoying the fact that Jesus is here and Jesus' people are here. And all of those, I think, can be appropriate responses to the presence of Jesus among us. All right, so imagine a few months' time. We're meeting together. It's June. Someone in the church, some of you, some of us, are serving Jesus by catering or welcoming or showing hospitality or helping out technically or looking after children. Someone else, maybe, in the same, maybe entering church at the same kind of time, is crying out to God in prayer during the service or making a big costly financial gift that has really, really wrenched something out of them or visibly weeping with joy and making a very demonstrative, obvious expression of costly sacrifice to Christ. And then someone else is just standing there, still, quiet perhaps, reflective, singing, praying, listening, who knows, but just enjoying the fact that Jesus is there and Jesus' people are there. And all of those are fitting responses of single-minded devotion to Jesus in the right time and place. And we'll probably, all of us, find ourselves more inclined to one or other of those responses. And sometimes we need a kick to say, hey, you need to stop reclining now and you need to go and serve someone or whatever it may be. So I'm not saying that they're all equal, you do any one of them all the time, but they're all appropriate at different times. Like Martha we are all called to serve the Lord with faithfulness as a king. Like Mary, we are all called to worship the Lord with abandon as a saviour. And like Lazarus, we are all called to recline in the presence of the Lord as our friend. 
In the next few chapters, Jesus is going to do all three of those things for his disciples. He's going to wash their feet as an act of service. He's going to pour out his life for them as an act of costly and extravagant devotion. And he's going to recline in their presence, eating a supper with them, making them breakfast on the beach in John 21. And it is in response to his acts of service and sacrifice and friendship that we reciprocate and respond to him in those same ways. Now, I focused on single people or unmarried people in this story, but none of these responses are unique to single people. I trust that's obvious, or to unmarried people. I'm not a monk, right? I don't think singleness is more spiritual, necessarily, or that sex is sinful or anything remotely like that. But in a society that is obsessed with sex and pairing off and romantic relationships, both within and outside the church, in my experience, it is worth sometimes standing back and considering how often devotion to Jesus has been literally single-minded. And the ultimate example is, of course, the Lord Jesus himself, who gave up the right to be married in order to come and save us from our sins and commit himself to the bride of Christ, the church. Our acts of single-minded devotion, the Marthas, the Marys, the Lazaruses, or whatever, are only responses to the single-minded devotion he's already shown to us all the way to Calvary and out the other side. So as we approach Easter this year, and as we prepare, God willing, to gather again in his presence more fully, more regularly, and with not just Jesus but his people, let's reflect on his commitment to us, whether we're serving serving him or reclining with him or making costly sacrifices for him, or all three at once. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we long to be with you and your people we want to serve you as a king we want to sacrifice and lay our lives down for you as a savior we want to recline with you and enjoy your company as a friend and we pray that by your spirit you would lead us closer and closer into a world of service sacrifice and friendship with you our risen lord jesus our savior and our king and we pray for your glory to come and for your love to be shed abroad in our hearts. Amen.